This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brooke. Welcome to the Midweek Podcast. What follows is a longer conversation with Clive Thompson about Mastodon. The more edited version will be on the show that posts on Friday. At the base of the Statue of Liberty, there's a poem that bears some famous lines. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. Worthy words for a new start, but in 2022 they could easily address a distinctly different huddled mass in search of a more specialized refuge. We'll turn out of the turmoil at Twitter, the social media giant appearing to be in disarray after as many as half of its employees were laid off under new owner Elon Musk. How's this for a first message from your new boss? A staff-wide email that was sent in the middle of the night, Elon Musk suggested the company could go into bankruptcy as executives are resigning, advertisers are fleeing, and trolls are running rampant. The latest turmoil at Twitter this morning, more than 4,000 contract workers were terminated over the weekend. As a result, millions of Twitter users are exploring another little-known platform called Mastodon. Mastodon, originally created by a German programmer named Eugen Rochko in 2016. While the two platforms share a general resemblance, the similarity is merely skin deep. For example, what we think of as a tweet button on Mastodon is called a toot, although as of this week, toot has been retired, being too easily employed in double entendres, so the button now just says publish. And also, what you post can be a lot longer. And to join Mastodon means joining a group that acts as your home base. That group is called a server or an instance. There's no universal group with all users. Plus, Mastodon's original source code is publicly available and changeable. All this because Mastodon just doesn't want to be like Twitter. But why, I hear you cry, does any of this matter to those of us who really couldn't care less about Twitter, much less Mastodon? Clive Thompson is a tech journalist whose work appears in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, and Smithsonian. His most recent book is Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. He's offered a kind of explainer in a recent Medium piece, and he says that Mastodon... Some of the stuff is very similar. When you make a little post, yes, it's typically called a toot because Mastodon's symbol, which is, you know, a, a Mastodon, 
has elephant-like snout. And so the idea is that you're tooting. Of course, because toot has these really terrible other implications uh, that the creator was not aware of in English, many people running Mastodon software will voluntarily sort of change the code on their server to say, yeah, this is a publish button. This is not a toot. But it's basically the same thing as a tweet. Often people install it so there's kind of a longer length the one that I'm on, you can write like 500 characters, which is like, mm. you know, almost twice as much as a tweet. That starts to kind of become almost like a blog post, which is kind of nice. And then there's a button, if you see something awesome, kind of like retweeting on Twitter, you can hit that button and it's called boosting. So it mm-hmm. will, it'll take what someone else said and show it to everyone who's following me. We're going to get back to all of that, but sticking to the vocabulary for a second, a particular server, like I'm on the Journo server. Yeah, you're on journo.host, right? Is Mm -hmm. that the one you're on? Yeah. Uh Yeah, so basically what's a little different is when you join Twitter, you just go to Twitter. But the way that Mastodon works is it's what they call a federated bunch of Mastodon servers, sometimes also called Mastodon instances, just to make it even more complicated. The point being, someone can set up their own Mastodon server. A friend of mine did it, and he said, hey, Clive, do you want to join mine? I said, sure. And so there's like 50 of us, and he's running it. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these servers. You're on one that's run by a bunch of journalists, journo.host. And there's like 2,000 or so Mm -hmm. journalists there. This is one of the first kind of weird things, right? Like we're accustomed to a social network being just one site that you go to. And this is not like that. These are all thousands of sites that are quote unquote federated. They can kind of talk to each other. You know, anyone on any server can generally more or less talk to people on other servers. The other piece of lingo is they call this the Fediverse, the federated universe, right? <laughs> uh, it's uh, There's actually a bunch of things out there in this federated universe. Mastodon's only kind of one piece of software, but because it's, it's so much like Twitter, it's kind of the one that's taken off recently. The federation aspect of this is one of the big differences, as you've said. And the default is that all the various servers or instances can see other ones, but that's just the default. Each server or instance makes its own rules. And it can also just decide to block another server if they find it too toxic. Yeah. Make it so that you can't see it and it can't see you. You're exactly right. There are servers, uh, you know, that I've been on and I've been on different Mastodon servers for years now. And they'll each set up rules saying, hey, guys, here is what we consider to be good behavior and allowed behavior on our server. You can't be a racist idiot. You know, you, you can't say stuff that we consider to be misogynist by the people on this community. If you do that, we have the right to kick you off the server. And there are other servers that are like, yeah, we don't have any rules. You can kind of say whatever you want. So it's almost like belonging to a neighborhood where there's neighborhood rules, right? And if the neighbors decide, you know, you're being a terrible neighbor, they could say, you know, you're not allowed to be on this neighborhood anymore. But the really interesting thing is that if someone comes to me and like starts harassing me in DMs or in or in replies to me, I can I can mute or block just that one person. And I can also decide, hey, you know, the server that person is on is filled with dirtbags. So I'm going to block that whole server. I don't want to see anything they do. I don't want them seeing what I say. And that's great. That's actually very useful. But there's this extra layer where an entire server, like my entire server, like 50 people on it could decide there's a bunch of other servers over there that are just filled with terrible people who are harassing us. So let's put a block from our entire neighborhood to theirs, our entire server to theirs. Mm -hmm. So nothing that anyone does on our server can be seen by them. Little sort of federated nation states in like (laughs) early medieval Europe. It's really interesting. And you wrote an article recently on Medium, 
explaining that Mastodon is, compared to not just Twitter, but almost all other social media sites, it's explicitly antiviral. It prioritizes friction. And there's a number of ways in which it does that. I mean, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, they want big viral surges. They're designed that way to push things to get more popular. How does Mastodon push against virality and why? There are two ways in which Mastodon software and the people who've been using it push against virality. The first one is at the level of kind of the code, like the way that Mastodon software is designed. There's a couple things in there that are very different from the way things work on Twitter. Because if you think about Twitter, a lot of the way it's architected is designed to sort of encourage massive joint attention of millions of people on some hot meme or joke or person that has just blowing up right now. Trending, it's trending, trending. It's trending, exactly. It's like, we're all looking at it, we're all talking about it. The way that Twitter does that is that it, it has a couple tools to encourage virality. It has an algorithm that says, well, if a tweet is starting to take off, then let's amplify it further. Let's push it to the top of other people's algorithms, other people's feeds, so that like it's a rich get richer phenomenon, right? And there's other things right. like the quote tweet button, you know, that basically allows me to go, someone just said this thing, here's what I think about it. That's another thing that often you see, whenever you see a big viral surge, it's often based around these quote tweets, right? Now, neither of those things exist in the traditional Mastodon software. For example, the feed, it's just ranked mm -hmm. in reverse chronology. So whatever you're looking at is just what happened at this moment, and it goes backwards in time downwards. Mm -hmm. And there's no universal search. You can search your own posts. You can search your home server for maybe a post you want to get back to. On Twitter, if you want to search Clive Thompson, you can search all of Twitter for those words. Mastodon doesn't do that. Mastodon doesn't allow yeah. quote tweets. Yeah, exactly. I don't understand why. That one is pretty, pretty controversial. Why not? What's the point of these changes? Well, the creator of Mastodon and the early community of users thought that quote tweeting on Twitter had led to too much negative quote tweeting of the form of like, wow, would you look at this stupid crap this person just said? By sardonically pointing to it, you're actually promoting stupid crap. And in their view, you're sort of adding to the like nasty, corrosive, sardonic quality of a lot of Twitter discourse. Mm -hmm. That's how they saw it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were like, you know, let's just not do that. Let's not have that possible so that, you know, we don't have that culture. But underneath that, there was quite a subtle thing going on, which is that the creator of Mastodon and, and again, the early community of users who were very influential. Where were they based? They were based all over the world, frankly. Mm -hmm. Early users of Mastodon were often people that sort of fled Twitter because they were being harassed there. And they regarded a lot of these viral surges as being related to the harassment that they'd seen. So where Twitter tries to make things go fast, the design of Mastodon and kind of the norms of the community were to make things go more slowly. And that's why you don't see quote tweets. That's why you don't see an algorithm that tries to find viral utterances and make them even more viral. Mm -hmm. but, but the upshot is, you know, it can be quite weird for someone to come from Twitter and look at what's happening on the Mastodon communities, right? Because I've literally had journalists show up on Mastodon and ask me, who are the must-follows? You know, where's the hot conversations? And I'm like, guys, you know, th there really aren't any. I mean, there definitely are people that have more followers than others, but they don't sort of loom large, in people's feeds the way they do on Twitter. But are there conversations? I'm new to the site. Oh, yeah. Can you learn lots of stuff? 
Oh my goodness, yes. In fact, actually, I would tell you that in the last kind of week that a lot of people have flooded on a Mastodon, it has really kind of transformed in a good way for me. I'm getting much better quality conversations on Mastodon than I am on Twitter, and that maybe I've had on Twitter in years, frankly. Hmm. And I think it's due a little bit to some of these differences in the way things work. Like people are more encouraged just to sort of talk about ideas and not as incentivized to say something that is, you know, going to go viral. Because one of the things about antiviral design that you see in places like, you know, the Fediverse and Mastodon is that once people sort of orient themselves and go, well, is not exclusively for sort of self-promotion and trying to make things take off, it kind of changes what you want to say in the first place. If Twitter is sort of trying to encourage hot emotionality so that something can really explode, you get a kind of the opposite thing. You get a little more quieter, muttering conversations that go in weirder places. I quite like that. So prior to Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, you quoted writer and programmer Robin Sloan saying, an industrialist may soon purchase Twitter Inc. His substantial success launching reusable spaceships does nothing to prepare him for the challenge of building social spaces. The latter calls on every liberal art at once, while the former's just rocket science. Okay, so, Clive, even with all these features designed to prevent Mastodon from becoming what Twitter is and has been at its worst, can Mastodon really immunize itself against the plagues of traditional social media like harassment and hate speech and trolls? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, definitely it is easier for people on a Mastodon server to block themselves off from really terrible actors. And we saw this years ago. There was this famous moment when a bunch of, you know, just common Nazis decided that, hey, all these folks, these early adopters of Mastodon came from Twitter because they wanted to get away from racial harassment. There was a lot of queer and trans communities that were trying to get away. So the trolls said, let's just follow them over there. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And what the trolls discovered was that once they got up in people's grills, a couple servers said, all right, we're blocking you. And the thing is, those server administrators, the people running those servers, they talk to each other, right? I'm a participant in helping run my server, and we will talk to people that run other servers to find out, okay, so, you know, how are things going? What problems are you running into? We'll sort of trade stories of terribly behaved other servers, and we will jointly block them all. And this is exactly what happened to the influx of Nazis, was that very rapidly they discovered that Every other server had just unilaterally blocked them, and they were sort of in the corner of of the Fediverse just talking to themselves. And so in one sense, that's great. There are much more powerful tools than I think exist in Twitter. But, you know, there's a lot of vulnerabilities, too. Twitter had some of the world's top engineers working hard on security. It was harder to hack into Twitter and steal data. If you have thousands of people who are kind of like me or only slightly more technically sophisticated than me running their servers, the security is going to be nowhere near as good. And so there is probably going to be, I would imagine, a lot of trolls and even nation states hacking into Mastodon instances if they think there are people on those servers whose information they want to steal or they want to screw with. When I saw that there's a journalist instance, I thought, well, that's great. Probably a good thing for there to be a Mastodon instance just for journalists. But it's also kind of a honeypot, right? You know, uh, you could imagine a lot of actors wanting to get in there and steal that information. Wait a second. Is Mastodon collecting data? I mean, is there data stored somewhere that can be hacked into? Or are we just talking about the substance of people's posts? Well, direct messages, one person to another on Mastodon, Hmm. which are putatively private, but could easily be stolen. 
Most people wouldn't, like, say who their anonymous sources are in those contexts. Uh, you would hope so. Uh, but people say a lot of stuff in DMs. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, All right. And then there's just, you know, login information, passwords, stuff like that. Could be reused from other places. So tell yeah. me more about the downsides then. There are some big cultural downsides to this kind of antiviral culture. One of them is that, you know, for all of the sort of bad stuff that we've seen from big viral surges on Twitter, there's also really good stuff, right? Like some of the biggest issues of our day, like Black Lives Matter or Me Too, Mm. these were issues that had been ignored by the mainstream media for a really, really long time. And it was working with these mechanisms of virality that a lot of these issues came to the fore, to the mainstream, right? I don't think there would have been as robust a conversation about misogyny in the workplace, about the treatment of black Americans by police, if it weren't for these viral surges on Twitter. Those were really, really good things. There's also some fantastic black academics who have been thinking about the problems that are caused by not having something like quote tweets. For Mm -hmm. example, um, Jonathan Flowers, an academic, just wrote this fantastic series of tweets and series of posts on Mastodon saying, look, Black Twitter was a huge phenomenon, and it was incredibly important for black communities all across the world and in America. And it relied heavily on quote tweeting because that tapped into the sort of call and response culture that was generations old in black America and around the world. It also brought their words, their quoted words, more to the fore. I hear what you're saying, and I know that there's a real push to get Mastodon to do quote tweets or quote toots. They're called boosts. They're quote boosts. Boosts. Um, Yes. And one of the problems is, of course, that because it is, you know, federated, because I'm running with some friends, I'm running a copy of Mastodon on my server, and there's thousands of other people running them, the only way to get everyone to have quote toots or quote tweets would be for everyone to update their software in exactly the same way. And it's not clear that everyone would want to do that, right? Because the whole point is to have local control. However... Twitter, though a dumpster fire, (laughs) is not dead, (laughs) nor are all the other virally driven social media platforms. I mean, they're still there. Does Mastodon have to be one? This is really on point. A lot of people have been arguing long before me that Mastodon and the other services on the Fediverse are not even supposed to be replicas or substitutes for Twitter. They have an intentionally different way of being and of encouraging conversation. And so... You shouldn't look to it to replace Twitter in the first place. Personally, I hope that Twitter doesn't go anywhere for all the reasons you talked about. Sure, it's a dumpster fire, but it has some amazing, amazing things that come from shoving everyone into this one room and having these weird, rangy conversations. Mm -hmm. I think that's powerful. I hope Elon Musk doesn't drive it into the ground. I'm a little worried he is. I'm terrified it's just going to turn into a whole pile of 404 error pages any day now. Let's be real. That would be a really bad thing for certain aspects of public discourse. A lot of people like to pile on Twitter, including myself, but they would really miss it if it were gone. I was going to ask you if you think this kind of social media is sustainable, whatever that may mean. Yeah. I don't know if any particular kind of social media is ultimately sustainable. One keeps being supplanted by another. I mean, Friendster, anybody? So what do you think? Is it? I actually think that Mastodon and these other experiments on the Fediverse are 
extremely sustainable for the following reason. Because they're all small local experiments, you only need a small number of people to say, hey, I want to keep this going to keep it going. And it reminds me a little bit of this sort of massive dark matter world of inexpensive to cheap to free discussion boards devoted to hobbies, right? Hmm. I play guitar. So I am on like four different guitar pedal and guitarist discussion groups. And they're all run using free software on some rented server somewhere that costs like a dollar a month. And there's like 300 regulars. And we don't care if anyone else, in fact, we don't want anyone else to show up. There's 300 of us. That's all we need to talk about guitar pedals until the sun explodes. And we're completely off the radar and we like it that way. And there are hundreds and thousands of communities like this around the world. They constitute sort of the dark matter of social media. While everyone's talking about Twitter and TikTok, because those are legitimately important sites, there is just this long thriving, like decades thriving world of social media below that that's much more human scaled. And to a certain extent, Mastodon is like that. It's having its moment in the sun right now, and it might grow to be huge. But even if the attention of the world were to move away from it, it will absolutely sustain itself because it only requires a bunch of committed people to say, hey, I want to do this. Things like that are very robust. Now, part of the reason traditional social media promote engagement, which is often expressed in ugly interactions, uh, is that those interactions prompt clicks and views and, uh, and emotions that drive up ad revenue. How does Mastodon make money? It doesn't. It doesn't make money at all. It is software that individuals run to provide a service for themselves. Is it like Wikipedia or something? Can you contribute to Mastodon? Like Mastodon, again, is just software that I and a bunch of friends run. So we have a bill for a server every month, and we have to cover that bill. And so we just sort of pass the hat, and we have a Patreon. There's some much larger servers that have it more formalized. They're like, okay, you know, if you want to be part of the server, you kind of have to kit in this amount you know, a month so we can pay not just for the server cost, but for someone to run it and make sure it works. There's a whole range of ways this can work. Very, very different from a regular social network like Twitter, where there's a central place that has to pay for employees. This is like thousands of little places that are all like little, you know, anarchist gatherings. And I say anarchist in the positive sense, like not lack of a rule, but self-rule. So I'm curious why you got on Mastodon ahead of all of us. You said it prioritizes friction. Becca, the producer of this segment, had a great phrase. She said it's like old school communication using just a quarter cup of Silicon Valley to make it palatable. (laughs) Do you think people will enjoy it? That's a great question. I originally got on Mastodon because, you know, I was interested to see what this new Fediverse was like. And I joined like a server filled with open source software nerds. Okay, this is cool. Like I can actually talk about this. We could go really deep and nerdy without me bothering my Twitter followers who would have no interest in hearing me talk about Linux drivers for antique webcams. Mm -hmm. But I was attracted to the idea of this sort of self-run non-corporate world. And I could see that people were behaving differently and I wanted to understand why. Now, the question is, is this attractive to enough people that a lot would want to do it? If you'd asked me three weeks ago, before Elon Musk started driving people in a panic away from Twitter, I would have said, I don't think a lot of people are going to want to interact in the way that, you know, Mastodon's community and technological affordances allow you to do. But lo and behold, there are just tons of folks now who've joined Mastodon that I'm following, and they're from 
every walk of life. Someone joked the other day, they posted something on Mastodon saying, I don't know, man, people keep on saying Mastodon is hard to join, but I just got a note from my retired mother saying, oh yeah, I just followed you on the elephant site, you know? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> It's impossible to be right about yeah. this stuff. It's impossible yeah. to prognosticate. It's a real mugs game. But let's yeah. acknowledge, first of all, that Twitter isn't even close to the most popular social media site. It's no Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat. That said, and this is a question we always ask, and people who've gotten this far into the interview are wondering why we haven't asked it until now. Why do you think a migration from Twitter is worth paying attention to, even if you've never used Twitter and will never use Mastodon? Does it matter? The way people use Twitter or don't use Twitter, or the alternatives they go to, does matter for the following reason. Twitter has, for better and for worse often both at once, become kind of a fulcrum for various aspects of civic discussion and civic debate. It's designed to be really fast. It's designed to be really easy. It's text-heavy. There's definitely pictures and videos, but Twitter is fundamentally one of the last big social medias that heavily prioritizes text and writing. And that gives it a type of a skimmability and speed that something like discourse on YouTube doesn't have because you have to watch the 10-minute video. That's sort of why Twitter has had this outsized force in public debate. Partly also, you know, there's a lot of journalists there, there's a lot of celebrities there, but I honestly think it's because of this, this text-based discursive format. And I'm not the first person to point this out. In fact, there was a great tweet storm by Taylor Lorenz of the Washington mm -hmm. Post a while ago saying sort of exactly this, right? So in that sense, yes, even if you don't use Twitter, that's why it matters, is because it has that outsized influence. And therefore, if people, even a significant chunk of people, are disenchanted with Twitter or forced off Twitter to the point that they go somewhere else, those other spaces also have an impact. The really interesting thing is that the long-term users of Mastodon on the Fediverse are not entirely thrilled <laughs> with this new migration of people who are being driven off Twitter because they're kind of like, look, guys, we had this kind of quiet space that was working really well for us, and now there's a ton of new people running around with very different cultural assumptions, very different behaviors. They're a little worried that kind of the conventions and the culture of Twitter, including some of that thirst for morality will be injected into the DNA of the culture of people using Mastodon. And that's interesting, too, because, of course, it isn't just technology, it's culture, how people want to behave. And spaces change when people's cultural expectations change. Clive, thank you very much. Oh, I'm glad to be in here. That was a lot of fun. Clive Thompson is a tech journalist whose work appears in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, and Smithsonian. His most recent book is Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. You can find On the Media on Mastodon by searching at onthemedia at journa.host. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.